Hey there, I'm Fabio Lomolino. I'm John Gorman. And welcome to the second episode of Insight Download. Uh, this second conversation we had is with Jason Woody from Be More Clubhouse. John, Jason is a, is a friend of yours of many years and a collaborator. Why don't you help us uh, help set up our conversation for folks today? Who's Jason and what's the Be More Clubhouse? Sure. Um, um, we'll get into this a little bit more in the interview, um, but the... Uh, Be More Clubhouse is a really unique way of providing a space for uh, psychosocial rehabilitation, um, as well as a space for a community uh, for adults experiencing mental illness. The Clubhouse model is an international model. There are something like over 300 clubhouses around the world. Um, and to be a clubhouse means that they are accredited by this international organization that sets out a list of standards that each clubhouse has to follow. So we're taking a closer look at the Be More Clubhouse, um, the one and only clubhouse in Maryland, and we're going to learn a little bit more about what they have to offer. Yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, folks will will appreciate understanding. So to set up this conversation, I think one of the things that I thought was really fascinating was we had a plan of going over the Be More Clubhouse and interviewing Jason Woody, who's the executive director. And um, what I thought was fascinating is the moment we walked in, the f like they were all having preparing lunch in the lobby with the members of the of the clubhouse, and you couldn't even pick out Jason from the crowd because there was nothing that said that said like this is a professional and this is a client. There's this very egalitarian feel, and um, they insisted on us interviewing a clubhouse member before we talked to Jason as a way of really prioritizing this model. Can you say more about like why why that's important as we walk into that conversation? Why why was it important that they put a member of the of the clubhouse up front for us to talk to? Sure, one of the core values of the clubhouse model is um, highlighting the strengths and abilities of the members who come to spend time there. Uh, and so uh, in every facet of the operations of the clubhouse, uh, members really are leading the way. And they're such a, a crucial component to um, the clubhouse operating that uh, without the members, there's no clubhouse. And so um, without them, then... Well, <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. So... We're going to hear first from Dee, who's a member of the clubhouse, who's a, who's a contributor to their to their program, um, and Dee is going to Dee really embodies the philosophy of the clubhouse. And then after speaking with Dee, uh, you'll 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 hear us interviewing Jason, who will give us sort of the intellectual, programmatic perspective um, that that that'll be really important to understanding not just the Be More Clubhouse model which is fascinating in and of itself. But I've walked away just being really amazed at sort of a, the implementation of this idea of respecting people's sort of dignity, agency, and the need for community um, that I think is applicable to anyone who works in the mental health field. Welcome, Dee. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being part of our interview today. I was hoping that you could just give us a sense of the story of how you became a member here at Be More Clubhouse. Well... I had been going back and forth into the hospital, so my psychiatrist did refer me here. And this is how I became a member. 
And when I first stepped in the door, it was like I felt like there was that was the place that I needed to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from that point on, I've just been meeting my goals and being more successful, staying out of the hospital, you know. So um, it's just it's really a good feeling compared to where I was at. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What brought you in and what keeps you coming back? Well, like I said, what brought me in, I was referred. (laughs) And and, um, what keeps me coming back is that the way that the clubhouse is set up. Like, we don't focus on your diagnosis. You can come in and be yourself, be a part of, and you can actually grow in your goals and things that you want to do. And it helps me feel that I can be more confident in myself. So um, that's what really, it keeps me coming back. I mean, I'm just, you know, I would be not good if I would stay home, you Mm. know. You mentioned that you are working, you're making progress towards your goals here. Can you share a little bit about either your goals or what are some typical goals that a lot of members might have coming to the clubhouse here? When I first came to the clubhouse, I had written a... um, it's like a letter. We had, we do like little letters that we can, bulletin letters. And one of the things is that I shared that what I wanted to do, what my goals were. And my goals were to not be depressed so much, be isolated, to better my health physically as far as wellness, and to get a job. And one of my goals was when I was, when I was to turn 60 years old, I wanted to be sitting in my new brand new Cadillac. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so um, I have been doing um, really well. Um, the clubhouse has provided jobs for me. I did purchase a vehicle, but it's not a Cadillac. <laughs> not yet. Uh, right, not yet. I still got, you know, like three, year, three more years. You know, that's, that's my goals. And one of the things that I do enjoy is that I'm among people that are like me, and we can help each other. You know, that's what keeps me coming back. One of the things that I've noticed that we noticed on our tour was the role that work plays in making this like a vibrant and active community. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about like how you experienced that? Like what 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 roles you've played and and what you found playing those different roles and just how how the the sort of voluntary work aspect of it was for you? Well, because of the units, we have different units. Um, and you can feel free to work in whatever unit you want, culinary unit, membership, um, communications, or the um, like doing different social events and things like that. So what I, what I started doing was I would be in one place, learn everything, and then it's like I had to move on to something else. So um, it's really good to, because, you know, I learned something different just about every day. And I don't know everything fully, but, you know, just learning from others that's coming here and from staff, it's uh, it's really a, a good, you know, a way of learning. One thing I'm hearing is like, it's not just about doing the work. It's like, as you're doing the work, you're learning things. And yes. that gives a kind of joy to, the, to mm-hmm. be learning things, yep. to feel like you're growing. Right. Yeah. And also we do it together. You know, we do it together because I don't know everything. And a member say, well, no, D, let's do it like this. Like, what? Well, okay, we'll do it like that, you know. Mm. So, 
So that collaboration is also part of the work. It brings yeah. you together. And I imagine yes. because the work groups change all the time that you're connecting with different people each time. Right, right. Yeah, that's cool. I, th- I think you said that there was a, you experienced something different here than you did at previous either treatment facilities or um, places where you've been. What was different? What was it like before? Oh, absolutely. Well, in other places that I've been, they focus more on your diagnosis. In other words, it's like, you know, try this medication, try that medication. Here we don't, you know, you, you don't do that. And that's what makes a difference. Because if you're focusing on different medications and things like that, that's also going to allow you to focus on your diagnosis and you're going to be, you know, not thinking about progressing. You know, you're going to be thinking about, oh, I need this. Uh, I don't feel like this or, you know, something like that. So. So it gives you kind of a different mindset. Yeah, it does. It really does. So I'm really curious about what was your experience as a clubhouse member when the pandemic first started? Well, my experience was I did get really afraid because I knew that I had to iso- that I would isolate even more. But what helped me was that we did have the virtual um, meetings, and that really did help. We had virtual meetings twice a day. Um, also the clubhouse provided, like if we needed some food, they would bring food to you, you know, so that, that right there really and truly did help me a lot versus a lot of programs didn't do that. You know, people were just out. What do you think this last year and a half would have been like for you if you didn't have the clubhouse? Oh, I don't know. I mean, considering my like living situation and things like that. I I don't even want to think about what could have happened, but I know that it wouldn't have been good. Yeah, that's one thing I'm I felt downstairs was there's a sense of community. Like you just walk in and the place feels very much alive. Yeah. It does not yep. feel like the lobby of any right. clinic that I've ever walked into or any rehab program. Right. So there's something about that feeling of all, having all these people around that I don't know, made me feel safe in a sense like surrounded by people and that feeling of just like feeling like you're part of something and a sense of safety. I'm just wondering if you feel anything like that when you come in here. Oh, I do. I feel, I feel safe when I come here, but I also know that, um, sometimes members, we can have a bad day, you know, and that's another part of that makes me feel good because once I get to know the members, if they come in and if they're not looking too right, if I speak to them and they don't speak back, I'm like, okay, let it go. But then later on, I might say, you know, well, how are you doing today or something like that. And that really helps because before the day is over, then they're, you know, they're back to their self again. It's like, okay, everything's okay, you know. So mm. that's what, you know, it makes, it. it's a good feeling. I'm hearing that, like, in a sense, members take care of each other. Yes, yes. We, de- we develop relationship. We exchange phone numbers. You know, so it's it's uh, it's really good because a lot of us don't have family members. So a lot of members will come here and say, you're my family member or, you know, this is my family. You know, I love you all, you know, things like that. So that's really a good feeling. Again, I'm, I'm thinking about that in the context of the pandemic and how many people around the the city and the country and around the world who really felt isolated mm-hmm. um, and to already be a part of this community that 
you're not scrambling to try to find some new people to connect with or reconnect with really old friends. It's just been this ongoing presence in your life uh, and how powerful that was in preventing a real sense of isolation that could have been made that that could have made things a lot harder. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that is that's you know, that is so true. Um, just having the clubhouse and having the virtual during the pandemic, I mean, for me, it helped me a lot because I think if I didn't have members that, you know, people that I'm familiar with to talk to, um, you know, that can make you isolate more. It also can make you start to have really entertain bad thoughts. And, you know, some people will act on those thoughts. So if you have someone, you know, that you can talk to that's going to give you some positive encouragement, um, that that helps. What what advice would you give if you could imagine that, that um, somebody's listening to this mm-hmm. and kind of on the fence about whether the clubhouse is right for them or whether this is not something that they're interested in trying? What would you suggest or what would you advise them as they are trying to make that decision for themselves? Well, I would advise for them to come in and at least give it a try because you can't, you know, say, um, well, it's not going to work for me or you can't go on what you've heard, anything negative that you've heard. You would have to come in and be a part of and come in with the attitude that I'm going to make this work. You know, so, I mean, I can only say that, you know, it works for me. And I was really in a bad place, you know, but I've come a long way. I would say you have to try. You have to come in, you know. So you shared with us kind of the big picture. I'm curious, like, what are the little details about the clubhouse that you really like? Anything, any, like, little details about the days here, about what goes on here that you can share that could help paint a picture for us about, like, what life is like in this in this community? Well, I like I like the um, social events that we do have. Um, I like that on Thursdays they were open from to like six p.m. from eight thirty to six p.m. And we also have like we go on wellness wellness walks. We do meditation here, you know. So that's that's good. And it's all kind of different activities that you can participate in. Seems like a diversity of activities, a diversity of people. There's always new things happening. Yes, yes. Always something interesting and new happening. Yes. What are some examples of the social events you've had here? Um, for instance, like yesterday, we had card making, holiday cards. We did that, um, which was you know really great. And then when we do it, we also have like a snack or something like that, you know, to join in. We can sing. You know, it's just having a good time, you know. And sometimes when we have the social events, members will come that we haven't seen in a while because they know we're having a social event. They'll be like, okay, let me go, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what really makes, you know, a lot of members that may not have been here in a while to come back. One of the things that has always most impressed me about the clubhouse is that you're open on every single federal holiday. Yes, and so usually these are days when around the country, everybody can't wait to have the holiday come up so that they right. can finally have a day off from whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. As we're recording this now, I know that Thanksgiving is coming up. And so can you describe a little bit what the scene is like here during Thanksgiving? Okay. During Thanksgiving, we 
together. We cook. We prepare the meals. Some things are brought in, but we, um, you know, we prepare the meals together. We serve, you know, and, um, you know, we clean up afterwards together. And we just really have a good time. You know, we really do. We have a good time. How many people would you say show up? Oh, that varies because um, maybe close to maybe 30, maybe sometimes. It depends. I'm thinking that we're going to have a good turnout this Thanksgiving because of the pandemic, you know. So I'm thinking we're going to have a lot of people coming in. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, that that's just something that's amazing to me. You know, for, for a lot of people, Thanksgiving is a time to spend with family, family. for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> um, and uh, everybody that uh, is a Clubhouse member comes voluntarily. No one yes. has to come right. on mm-hmm. any days. And the fact that that many people, uh, of all the possible things that they could be doing on mm-hmm. a day like Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. choose to spend their time here, choose to have yes. that meal yes. with friends, with their peers. Yes. Um, it's just so amazing to me. Well, yeah, it is. And it's because, too, that some of us have family members that don't understand about mental illness. So, therefore, when we can have a place to come to that we're not judged, you know, that's what brings us here. Because on the holidays, a lot of us, we're not spending with our family members. We'll come here, you know, because we're not going to be judged or anything like that. But, you know, I mean, some family members, they don't understand. So you can be an embarrassment to them or they don't want you around, you know, so. It really is like the logo. It's a home in a sense. Yeah, it's yeah. Family and home. Yeah, and it's what you can put into it too, because you also have to be willing to, you know, put something in, give something. You know, it's not all about take, 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 take. You know, if you give something, you know, you get a lot back. Anything else you want to add that we haven't asked you that you think is important to say about just like what the heart of the of what's going on in this building? Well, I would say that for anybody out there that have a mental illness and don't have anywhere to go, to try to be more clubhouse. Thank you, Dee. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm going to take a quick break here, folks, to highlight the producer of our episode, John Gloss. John has been helping us to take the idea for this podcast and make it a reality. If you're listening and you're interested in recording your own podcast or if you're a therapist looking to record mindfulness practices for your clients, any sort of audio production at all, please feel free to to kind of check our our show notes for contact information uh, so that John can also make you sound really good. Okay, so that was was our conversation with Dee. Now you're going to hear from Jason Woody, the executive director of the Be More Clubhouse, um, and his perspectives on the amazing work that they're doing there. I don't know if this is necessary, but full disclosure. So I teach a class at Loyola where students um, are are on a service learning placement and many of the students are placed here at the clubhouse. So Jason and I have actually been working together for something like four or five years now um, for the purposes of this class. And my, my class actually this year is helping the clubhouse conduct a research study on what what are the impacts of the clubhouse on the members' overall sense of well-being over a period of time? For someone coming in for a service placement like that, mm-hmm. what what do you think someone, how long do they spend? Uh, like three hours a week for okay. about a semester, give or take. 
why maybe this is a question for both of you like why is that a why is that an educational why is that an important educational informative experience in your mind that's a good question i think from our perspective well one we we are a model for mental health recovery that uh not a whole lot of people know about so it's a benefit to us just to raise awareness about the clubhouse model with um, aspiring psychologists and other mental health professionals but I think in my mind, the key benefit to them is to just get that human connection and interaction with clubhouse members, um, seeing them as people rather than clients or patients. Um, hopefully that background will help them in their careers going forward, building empathy, building understanding of where people are coming from rather than meeting someone and trying to identify symptoms or, or you know, diagnose them. Yeah, I often, I guess that the, the the pitch that I give to my students is they are embarking on a doctorate in clinical psychology. And so that for our program is about five years where students are taking courses and receiving training on how to assess what is going on with somebody psychologically and come up with a diagnosis and how to treat that diagnosis. Often the treatment looks like a 50 minute therapy session. And so as a therapist, you're working with an individual for less than one hour a week. Well, that person has a whole life outside of that one hour a week. And there are so many other factors that go into, there's so many other factors that go into how that individual is doing in terms of their mental health that can't possibly be captured in just one hour a week. And this is a place where you get to see people being themselves. Yeah, that's what I meant. Jason, I'd love to hear you share a little bit about what is the clubhouse? Here we are at Be More Clubhouse. Can you give us a little bit of an overview yeah. of what is a clubhouse and, sure. and tell us about your program? Yeah, of course. Well, I think in essence, a clubhouse is a working community comprised of and for adults who have uh, mental illness or living with mental illness because, yeah, it obviously is a community of people who are gathering and supporting one another. But a central aspect of being here and being a member is is working and contributing to the community. And I think um, Dee touched on this earlier. It's like you you give some and you take back even more. You know, it's helping yourself by helping others a lot of the time. But also, you know, aside from just participating and working in the community and building relationships, um, we do have um, programs to help people transition to paid employment. Uh, to return to school, whether that's, you know, earning their GED or uh, going back to college or pursuing an advanced degree. People come to us uh, from all different backgrounds, all different situations. So we, you know, we work to meet them where they are, listen for what their goals are and, and you know, help to provide a foundation here of support and of resources um, that they can pull from and, and apply outside of the clubhouse doors. But to say more about the clubhouse model, generally speaking, it, it is uh, there is a defined model. Um, there are 37 standards that uh, govern um, the clubhouse model. And, you know, the standards get into clubhouse membership, the types of the relationships, the different programs we offer. Um, there's several different sections of standards, if that makes sense. And uh, there is a governing body called Clubhouse International that does accreditation visits. Um, there are about 320 clubhouses around the world in 33 countries. And yeah, based on, you know, th there's an assessment every three years of how your clubhouse is following the standards. And based on that, you can become accredited. 
So that's what officially makes you a clubhouse. There's a spirit in a clubhouse. Uh, you know, all clubhouses are a little bit, little bit different, you know, based on geography. I mean, not just where they're physically located, but just the local culture, I guess, is more what I mean. So there's a different, little bit different vibe based on the local culture, whether, you know, different parts of the U.S. or different countries. I've been to many clubhouses in many different places. There is a, a vibe <laughs> that you can recognize the second that you enter the doors. And I think um, you guys were talking about that a little bit earlier. Yeah, you feel a sense of vibrancy. Um, you can tell you're walking into a tight-knit community and there's just a lot, a lot of activity. It's very positive. I kind of stumbled into this work uh, myself, to be honest with you, because I, I was interested in nonprofits generally and I was open to ideas. I mostly thought I was interested, uh, this is 15 years ago, I thought I was interested in working with youth and I came across Fountain House in New York City. I was living there back in 2006. And Fountain House is the largest clubhouse in the world. And they were also the first one. Um, they've been around about 75 years at this point. Anyways, I, I came across them in my job search. And I had no background in mental health. To be honest with you, not even a particular interest in the field. But I took an interview there. I had applied there because I was look, you know, looking for a job. And my expectations were pretty low. I thought, you know, I'm not going to turn down this interview, but I don't know a whole lot about mental health. I'm not particularly interested in the field, but I could tell, you know, just the moment that I walked into the space, I was just blown away. It upended any ideas um, that I had in my mind. I guess the stigma that I carried with with me at the time about I, I thought it would be I guess I gotta, I'll be honest. I, I thought it might be kind of depressing, you know, going into a place like that. But it was like truly one of the most vibrant places I had ever stepped in. Everybody was so welcoming. There's so much going on. I mean, it's like 300 plus people there that come in a day. I spent several hours there interviewing in different um, units at Fountain House. And I was like, you guys just have to hire me. I, I, I actually said that in one of the interviews, like, please just hire me. <laughs> I felt the same thing walking in the lobby. Right? Yeah. There's an immediate vibe, energy, something you can't exactly put your finger on. I mean, one way I would describe it is a kind of a really healthy kind of messiness like it's alive yeah. in the sense that most places you walk into nowadays they're so well like they're like hyper organized but also because there's no one in there there's nothing moving there's no moving pieces there's yeah. no one it just feels like i immediately walked in and it kind of looks like a restaurant it kind of looks like a like a lobby but it it just ultimately felt just very alive there's a lot going on and I don't know. I when you were telling that story, it made perfect sense to me because I immediately was like, "Oh, I don't want to leave." Like, there's an energy here that yeah. just feels like it, it's not everywhere. Yeah, um, it's very organic. Um, Indeed, talked about this a bit. You know, one of the best things about the clubhouse, especially um, because people are coming to us um, with the mental health diagnosis, that the lack of judgment here, just accepting people for who they are. I think that's just so therapeutic from the get-go. Yeah, I think even if you don't have a mental health diagnosis, just coming into any space where you just feel relaxed. I mean, I've been working, I've been working here for a little over 12 years and I was at Fountain House for three years prior to that. And um, I'd never imagined I'd be in any, any job for that long, to be honest with you. But I love that I can be myself here, you know. You know, there, you, you have to be, you know, professional to some level and have boundaries like any other workplace. But I can truly be myself. Like if I'm having a bad day, I can tell people I'm having a bad day. You know, I don't have to have I don't have to come to work uh, with the body of armor on or 
present myself uh, any differently than I do at home. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Except for the uh, COVID mask, that's the only one. <laughs> but uh, the other, yeah, I think, yeah, you can, it's very therapeutic even for me. I think just coming into a space where, you know, um, you're not judged, you're accepted, you can kind of, this isn't totally true for me, but I think for members, you can kind of do your own thing. You can do whatever you want to do here, you know, within the parameters of what we offer and the space we have. And I think that's a form of respect, you know, letting people have choice, letting people, um, you know, choose their path while they're here. So what do you think is the key element that members find so beneficial? Is it the acceptance or that they can do whatever they want? Or is there some other quality that the clubhouse is providing for them? I think to boil it down, the two things are community and purpose. So the community, the friendships, the support that members get from each other and from the staff. In contrast to isolation that right. they might be experiencing without a place like this. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A, lo- a lot of folks, uh, a lot of members here have spent years and some of them even decades of, of isolating. You know, like I said, we have people from all, all different backgrounds. Uh, some people have no connection to any family. Some people are closely connected with their families, everything in between. But yeah, I think it is, yeah, the community aspect, the fact and Dee again talked about this earlier. She, you know, people understand each other here. There's there's something really important with that, you know, being able to share your vulnerabilities with others. And then the purpose, I think, you know, it is a work-based program. Members are contributing, members are participating in work units while they're here, whether they're cooking lunch or entering information in our database or operating the reception desk. You know, there's a million different tasks that are required to be able to run the organization. So members are doing real jobs is giving people a purpose. It's reminding them that they already have skills if, if, they, if they aren't already aware or if they've forgotten. We're looking for the healthy parts of people. You know, it's like not about what you can't do. It's about what you can do. And a lot of times people surprise themselves and what they can do just when they try or when they're given the opportunity and support. In regards to the, the purpose um, that I think uh, the clubhouse gives to, some, to many of our members, we explain that as like the need to be needed. So for example, one of the clubhouse standards is that there are sufficient staff to engage the membership, but not so many, um, but few enough so that uh, member participation is required to actually be able to run the program. So in other words, we're intentionally short-staffed. By design, we're short-staffed. By design, our staff are supposed to be stressed. (laughs) I mean, not really, but our staff are supposed to feel a sense of urgency of like, oh my God, I can't do my job unless a lot of people help me. Um, And that is really important because people are truly, members are truly needed to be able to run the place. (laughs) It's not just for show. Right, exactly. It's designed so that like, if they don't contribute, the place starts to fold. Yeah. Yeah. If members didn't come, we wouldn't be able to operate (laughs) at all, basically at all. Um, Yeah. Who's going to answer the phone? Who's going to make the pizza? Who's who's going to, you know, keep track of of the work that we're doing? Who's going to like clean the bathrooms, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's the work is meaningful. If members don't show up, we're like, oh, my gosh, we need them to come in. (laughs) You know, people are truly needed to be here. And I and I think that is also therapeutic, like feeling and feeling needed uh, and truly being needed and then being thanked by another human being in an authentic way is is very healing i think for all of us really 
what you just said about that specific rule just just seems like pure genius in terms of organizational design of like mm-hmm. baking it in that because I won't I won't name names but having worked in a previous sort of non, big nonprofit where somewhere in the 70s or 80s a lot of money started to come into that field and the over professionalization of that mm-hmm. field led to the the need for volunteers and for clients to be involved in the service process disappear because they're like oh we have money now to hire a bunch of professionals and over the time it really disintegrated the heart of the work because it created a much more transactional relationship between like experts and professionals and people being served and it's just cool to hear that the vibe that we picked up walking in is not by accident and that one of the things you're saying i'm just going to connect it to like my therapy work that we talk about this this way in which our personal imperfections they force us to be in relationship with other people because we, we can't do everything on our own. And we may fantasize about being perfectly independent, but the dependence that we have on other folks, like it forces us into relationships and it creates the opportunity for this kind of healthy interdependence. So it's really cool to hear that the, the model, the, the, this model that you were talking about intentionally forces the, the nonprofit side of the, of the process to be dependent in a sense, to not, staff up to the point where it doesn't need the contributions. And I just think that that's so genius. Yeah. Um, I think you very eloquently explained the clubhouse model. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying Um, to draw those connections for the, just for the connection of like what this means for the outside world is like, that's, that's, I think a huge lesson for a lot of different fields. Like when we over-professionalize the, what we don't see in terms of the downside of things. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that comes out of that too, um, is members have a true sense of ownership of the clubhouse and sense of pride. Um, that's, that's really important too. It's like, this, this is my clubhouse. This is my place. Um, so when we have visitors come in, I, I think you guys ex- maybe experience this a little bit today. It's like people are excited to show you around. People come up and introduce themselves, you know, and it's uh, really reward- rewarding to me um, when I see that. Cause a lot of these folks are coming in um, with very low confidence, like, not everyone, you know, but some people are coming here and they're very quiet at first. They're kind of sitting in, in the corner and you notice after a week or two, sometimes even sooner in, in certain cases that people are jumping up and enthusiastically greeting visitors at the door, whether it's a potential new member or, you know, uh, any any type of visitor, really. But I think people feel people feel proud. People feel excited. People feel a sense of ownership of the space um, and of the community, which is really nice. Can you share a little bit about how the clubhouse helps members with employment outside of the clubhouse? Yeah. Well, you might have to fact check this, but I saw a statistic that adults with serious mental illness in in the U.S. have an employment rate of about 10%. At Be More Clubhouse, we're at 40%. And, you know, of course, we're always shooting for higher than that. But, um, yeah, a lot of people that come here, probably the majority of, of members who join, um, that's one of the first goals that they'll express to us. Like, I want to work, whether it's, I want to work right now, or I want to get myself in a position where I, where I will feel confident and comfortable to work. So yeah, again, you know, a lot of that foundation um, to help prepare people is done here. It's like working at the clubhouse, um, getting on a schedule. We don't force anyone to come and go at a certain time, but will encourage them to utilize the structure that exists here and to build up those skills and confidence in the clubhouse in a safe space with support. But we also, you know, 
part of our work for our staff and our members together is to go out, go out and recruit partners. So we're out in the community, uh, meeting employers, um, telling them about our program, you know, obviously being very transparent that we're serving adults with mental illness and convincing them that, that they should hire them because it's, you know, because our folks can, can do the job as good or, or often better than other folks that they're hiring. Uh, and they come with the added benefit of the support from the clubhouse. So we have an, a program called Transitional Employment. That one is very structured and very highly supported. Uh, essentially, the employer is hiring Be More Clubhouse to fill a job. So if I use an example, Eddie's Supermarket in our neighborhood here in Mount Vernon, uh, they're a transitional employment partner for us. And we have a couple of folks that work there and stock the shelves of the grocery store. That partnership started, well, of course, we introduced ourselves, told them about the program. They were excited to, to work with us. But it's initiated when our staff actually goes in and learns the job first, because well, I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. Um, so I would go in there, learn how to stock the shelves, right? And then I would come back to the clubhouse and say, okay, we have you know a partnership with Eddie's Supermarket. They need someone to stock the shelves for whatever, 15, 20 hours a week, whatever it is, and find out who's interested, try to find a good match, someone who has a strong desire to work, but also we think would benefit from a very supported type of employment. Um, then I would go back <laughs> to Eddie's with that member and train them myself. I've been trained so that the member that's starting this position has a relationship with me already. Um, hopefully they feel very comfortable with me and we and we do the job side by side, you know, for usually one to three shifts, depending on, you know, how long it takes them to get more comfortable. Um, and then it's, then it's their job for nine months. Um, if they have to miss a day, I go in and work the job. So that, that's the benefit to the employer is like, there's never an absence. It's always covered. If I'm working it, they don't pay me. I'm getting paid by Be More Clubhouse. That helps us to create these partnerships because a huge benefit to them. But also it helps the member because like they know if they know that they're not going to get fired if they miss a day for whatever, for whatever reason. So, so we're here to um, fill that gap. Um, and it's nine months for a couple of reasons. One, because we hope that that member who gets that experience can sort of move on to independent employment or supported employment, which is basically a long-term <laughs> transitional employment type placement. Uh, and then another person can get the opportunity after uh, the previous member moves on. The, the other element that strikes to me, strikes me even just physically walking in mm -hmm. the space is the centrality of the kitchen and the centrality of food. Can you speak more about like both from the employment perspective, but also just like the role that food plays in making this place run? Yeah. Well, we're hungry, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think that's how Fountain House, um, as I understand the history of the clubhouse model and the Fountain House, it kind of started that way because it was a group of patients, there were psychiatric hospitals in upstate New York, and a group, group of patients had, you know, left the hospital and decided that they would continue to meet and support one another. And they called themselves originally, like, it was called WANA, W-A-N-A, We Are Not Alone. They would meet on the steps of the New York Public Library and sort of, you know, basically a support group of peers. And then I believe one of them had, had either a wealthy family or access to fund somehow, and they were able to purchase a building, which later became Fountain House, but they were gathering the space and they're like, we have to eat, right? So people started making food for each other. And I think it's like any social gathering, food is always like a central component of that, right? It's a way to like, to share and to bond. And it's just also practical because you have to eat. 
And it, it's, of course, meaningful work in the context of the clubhouse. It's like, what's nicer than being able to cook for someone else if you have that skill to offer, right? The members who work in the kitchen here, I think, have a great sense of pride in the work that they're doing, and they get lots of generally very, very positive feedback, which is very healing. Yeah, it seems like there's a, there's just a, such a strong emphasis mm-hmm. on hospitality. Yeah. And the moment you walk in the door, folks greeting you, the food kind of drawing you deeper into the into the space, it just seems like, yeah, there's a strong, strong sense of mm-hmm. hospitality. Um, when we were downstairs, you spoke about sort of an open door policy. People can come in and it's very easy to become a member, but also that people can disappear for years and they can waltz right back in. Can you talk more yeah. about that? that open door policy. Yeah. Another clubhouse standard is that, you know, membership is voluntary and, and uh, not time limited. So in other words, you have membership for life and it's and it's also free for life. We've been around for over 12 years. Uh, there are a handful of people who have been coming here the entire 12 years and like, you know, they do other things, um, part-time work or involved in other programs, hanging out with family, friends, whatever, but this is a part of their lives. You know, we've had over 850 people join the clubhouse um, since we opened and we currently have about 100 members that are actively involved, which is normal for clubhouses. A lot of people become inactive for good reasons, like they no longer need the clubhouse. But at the same time, if you're inactive, you can always just come back in and be active again. So I think, um, you know, there's no there's no barriers to just one day walk right back in the door. We just had a member a couple days ago who hadn't been here in five years and she just walked in and there was a handful of us, including myself, who recognized her that a lot of people that have joined since then that didn't recognize her, but she was embraced immediately. I believe that even when people are inactive, knowing that the clubhouse is here as a safety net, um, something very valuable in that that can help people manage their illness and just just know that if they need us, we're here. Yeah, I don't know if that fully answered no, your question. No, it does. And it, it speaks, I think, to something I think we all recognize in ourselves and other people, this idea mm-hmm. of like needing needing a kind of mental safe harbor that even if you're not going there, knowing that there's a there's a place in your life that the door is open always and that if you have to, you can come back to that. And I, this word that Dee kept using that the folks that you introduced us to us downstairs kept using this family and how that is both like one of the powerful, attractive forces here, this sense of like community that's so powerful it, it transitions almost from community to family, but also how that seems to also be tied with the fact that folks with serious mental health issues oftentimes have very painful stories of separation and conflict with their families of origin. And yeah, I think these little details that I'm learning about, like the way that the the model is designed for a kind of institutional vulnerability, the way it's designed to practically embody a kind of unconditional acceptance that like to me, that's what's so powerful, the unconditional aspect of it. You can go for five years and you can walk right in the door and not, nothing nothing in, a, in essence has changed. How so many folks in life don't have that. They don't have a, a place that they can turn back to and come back to whenever they need to. Yeah, wow. I, I, I totally agree. I, I mean, that is so important and that drives me personally um, because we, we are a nonprofit organization. As an organization, we're always vulnerable. Our existence is you know, we're, we've been doing well and, uh, you know, recently purchased the building. Our, our finances are healthy right now. But um, it's so important that we are here uh, and stay here. Yes, we, we have 750 inactive members today, you know, and any one of them or, or more could, could walk back through those doors. And we want to make sure people can continue to rely on this space. And that's what I think is so cool about buying the building is, more than other organizations, your relationship to space, to being somewhere, to kind of planting down roots, is it seems like it's really important. Absolutely. I know a big um, 
central function of the clubhouse is members who are in attendance for the day reaching out to other members who are not attending for that day. What's behind that process? Yeah, our reach out program or reach out effort, I guess, in my mind is the most important uh, single task that we do at the clubhouse every day because people, you know, sometimes do isolate or often do isolate. I remember hearing a story when I when I first started working at Fountain House in New York about a member there who was very isolated, very depressed, and they kept getting calls from the clubhouse, but they would never answer the phone. But they get a you know whoever was calling from the clubhouse kept leaving a message. We're thinking about you. We hope to see you at the clubhouse soon. Um, those kinds of things for weeks, and they finally answered the phone and decided to come back into the clubhouse. And they said that was literally the only thing that kept me alive. Like they were very depressed and suicidal and like just hearing the the messages on the phone was what they, they said literally kept them alive. So I think I remember that story, you know, that that's probably not a, a typical experience, I don't think, but that's always stuck with me. And it's important, again, going back, there's that need to be needed. People need to be reminded that they're needed and they're appreciated and that they're wanted. So we make sure that we do that. And it's and it's also just true because like if they don't come in then we're not going to get everything done. Not to say it, that it's like self-serving uh, generally when we're doing reach out, but but there is an aspect of that. It's like we actually, it's like, I need you to please come and help me cook lunch or else we're not going to be able to cook lunch. Just reminding people that we're here and letting them know that, you know, somebody's thinking about them, I think is really crucial. I mean, I think that's really important for all of us. What were things like throughout the pandemic? Were you still open? Were you were members still coming in? Like most everyone else, uh, in mid-March of 2020, we did have to um, close our building for a while. Um, so we immediately transitioned to a virtual model. We tried the best that we could to keep our daily like meeting structure. So we essentially had like a morning and afternoon check-in call, and we tried to continue some of the like functions that we would normally do in-house, like the reach out. So like we would kind of assign a list of folks of members to call to members and staff who were part of the meetings, like, okay, can you call these five people and just check on them and invite them to the you know afternoon conference call or whatever. We started delivering food because you know a lot of people were stuck in their homes and like didn't have access to food or toiletries or other basic supplies. So we started doing that like a lot of other organizations. You know, we, d- we did the best we could and I'm really p- proud of how we adapted. We had to do what we had to do based on the, the times, I guess, but it was more about like, what do you need? How can we help you? Which is good versus like that need to be needed. Like, you know, we weren't able to engage members in the work as much as we would have liked to. It was just a lot more challenging without being together in a physical space. Transitioning back, we had to keep that in mind because we didn't want the culture to be of like, we don't want our members to think of themselves as consumers, if that makes sense. Like there is a place for that. That is important to have a place that you can go to and receive services. And that does happen here. But we didn't want it to only be like that. You know, it's like we want to make sure that we're being mindful of like the two way street getting a bit off topic. But yeah, we were we were fully virtual for about four months. And then July 2020, we went to sort of a hybrid model. We had a few people in the building and most people still connecting virtually. And it it just sort of grew in a mostly linear way from there in terms of like inviting, you know, uh, growing the capacity in the building a little bit at a time. And eventually in um, June of 2021 this year, um, We've been fully open and not really doing, you know, very doing very little virtual stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. we're we're still doing home visits to people who don't feel comfortable coming in. We're obviously still calling people, but 
we don't have a virtual program currently. What do you think a place like the Clubhouse meant to the members during this time when so many other things were shut down? So I started by saying we're a working community. There was some there was some work that members could do from home, but it was it was mostly just the community. And I think that was really important. It's like people knew that we're all sharing in this experience. You know, it sucked, honestly. Like, I don't think anybody. Well, I know very few people who said they enjoyed their quarantine. I think it was important for people to stay connected, um, even if it was just on the phone or on Zoom. I think all of everyone can relate to that. If you have major depression or bipolar disorder, like some of our members have, I think it's 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 crucial to like to stay connected. It's really important to their physical and mental health. One of the things that strikes me is the equalizing of power dynamics here and trying to create this sort of egalitarian model where, as an outsider walking through, I can't really tell who's staff and who's a member. It's hard to to tell the difference. What's it like leading an organization that tries to establish this sort of like flat power structure? I imagine that that can be complicated at times to be the executive director of a place that's trying not to get too hung up on power dynamics. Yeah. What's your experience? I'm just curious, like what's your experience of leading a place for, for these years and what that what that's like? I don't even really like telling people when they come, like if a potential member comes, I don't introduce myself as the executive director. I, I just, it fits my personality, I think. I mean, that's part of what attracted me here is like, I mean, there's definitely things that I have to do as the executive director and for providing leadership and, and skills that I've learned along the way, like with fundraising and with like organizational development and structure and all of that, which are really important um, for any executive director to have and to apply. It is nuanced. There is a little bit of a dance. I have to always be aware of it. And I, you know, I try to do my, my best into being just a part of the team. But it also takes a lot of pressure off of me. It's also nice in that regard. It's like like you were telling me um, today, you were making pizza. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. I can. Uh, we all clean together. We all, you know, I don't cook pizza or cook every day. But uh, being able to jump in, you know, that that fits my personality too and works work style. It's just like you know, I might be like writing a grant, but I can like jump up and enjoying the wellness walk or jump up and help in the kitchen or clean the bathroom or whatever. I, I really enjoy that. But from a leadership standpoint, yeah, it takes a lot of pressure off. For example, when we invite like politicians here for tours, the members are really the stars in that. It's not like, oh, I'm pulling them into my office and having a private conversation. It's like we're sharing and telling the story of the clubhouse and like our work it takes a lot of pressure off of me. And it's also just much more effective. You're seeing that there's some, some ways in which sharing a power makes you more effective as a leader, puts less pressure on you. Right. Yeah. I was just relating it to my experience of like just the model also, like your outcomes are not to like fix people. Your outcome is to like give them a space to be human. The drive is also not putting this additional pressure on the organization to like end the problem. You're just providing a space where people can just be. And I imagine there's also a, a less pressure in that as well. Yes, that is definitely true. Um, we're also acknowledging that despite whatever illness someone has, there's also um, plenty of healthy parts of them. So like we do sort of intentionally try to identify the healthy parts of people and engage them there. And oftentimes that expands. It's like, people again, people build confidence in themselves. People focus more on like what they can do versus what they can't do. So yeah, we're not trying to fix anyone, but we're here to remind people that they're, they already have wellness within them and that can grow. And that, do, and that does grow when you, when you sort of are able to see it and able to like apply yourself. But I don't want to say it's always that simple either. Mental illness is very serious. Like people go, go through really difficult times. It's not, 
it's not always the case that someone can come in and like meaningfully participate. But that the clubhouse is here for that too. It's like, you know, if someone relapses and they normally they were working the reception desk every day they were here, I don't want them to think like, well, just because you're not well, you shouldn't come in. Just because you don't feel like answering the phone, you shouldn't come in. It's like that again, that goes back to the community aspect. It's like you might just need to sit here and like talk to someone, or you might just need to sit here and not talk to someone. You know, it's it's really important that people have choice and have freedom to kind of be be where they are. The big question for me is like, this model makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. I've seen research from other countries with other models that are similar to this one. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's effective. So my first question to you is like, why isn't this spreading everywhere? What What is it about this model that is not catching fire? Why, what, what's the resistance that you see in folks in adopting models like this, even in other fields? Like what, what have you seen in terms of resistance to this way of doing things? It's a great question. I think clubhouses have to do a better job. And I think we are starting to do a better job of showing our outcomes and like collecting data. A lot of times when decisions are made by higher institutions or governments, they, you know, it's like they want to see data. And we're most clubhouses are grassroots organizations without a lot of extra resources or, you know, sophisticated in terms of like research and things like that. So that that's that's why we try to partner with with places like Loyola University. And we've also partnered with Johns Hopkins here to do research studies in the past. So we're working on that. But I think there, you know, we have a long way to go to kind of be able to demonstrate outside forces, so to speak, our effectiveness. That's that's probably one one of the biggest barriers. And also, I do think that there's also resistance in giving up power. Like you were talking, asking me about like how I feel about being the executive director in sort of a horizontally structured place. I think like that's threatening probably to a lot of like major institutions. And sometimes, frankly, a lot of times it's probably not even practical, you know, depending on what, what the place is doing, what their work is about. So I can't speak for them, but I do think it's radical in a sense, but also so simple, like what we're doing here. <laughs> it makes too much sense. It's almost like it isn't viewed as legitimate because it's so simple. <laughs> you know, we're not reinventing yeah. anything. It's just like we're just here as people doing things that we have to do to get by every yeah, day. Yeah, <laughs> you use a word to describe the place, which is it, everything that happens feels very organic. Yeah. Like you're setting up the right conditions for almost like the, the outcomes to organically show up. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. I imagine there's a lot of like careful planning and work that goes into everything. But it doesn't feel like the care is being imposed upon anyone. Like it's like a caring environment and structure and things are just sort of happening. And that can be terrifying for mm -hmm. organizations to think that we're like, we're not going to drive the change from point A to point B. We're going to create the conditions for change and then sit back and yeah. people will just walk through the experience that they have to walk through. Mm -hmm. I do think that it's like what you said is, I think, spot on that it's so simple and effective that it's almost we need more complicated things. Like I need something that's a little bit more complicated. It's too simple. It's it's hard sometimes to put faith in the idea that you build a healthy community and things like bipolar will start to shift simply because that person who is experiencing bi mm -hmm. bipolar symptoms is in, is contextualized now inside of a healthy and functioning community. Cool. So yeah. on that note, Jason, we started our interview with <laughs> you giving us a little caveat that like, I'm not a trained mental health professional. And that's part of the reason why uh, we wanted to talk to you. And actually, that's the question I want to kind of end our conversation with is, as a non-mental health professional, but that who has been working deeply with folks who are experiencing mental health issues for the past 15 years, what have you learned that you think is a valuable insight to share with folks who are who are doing more direct mental health treatment? Like, what what have you learned personally, professionally, 
that you think is insightful and a lesson that the folks outside of the clubhouse could 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 take? I think I, I would urge other uh, mental health professionals, uh, clinical professionals to try their best. It's hard, but try their best to see the whole person rather than you know the symptoms that they're presenting. Um, I have the privilege of spending all this time with our members here and I get to know them as people. I'm not introduced to someone here as like this person who has bipolar disorder. I, I, I don't even know what most of our members um, diagnosis is. I mean, we have a file, but I don't even see most of that paperwork trying to look at the whole person rather than the symptoms that they're presenting when you're meeting with them, um, trying to understand where they're coming from, maybe focusing, you know, if it's therapy or psychiatry. Yeah, asking about that, trying to, you know, and I'm sure this does happen, you know, building trust, taking time to build trust before labeling someone. But uh, also remembering to look at what's right with people rather than what's wrong. You know, it's like, being able to identify people's strengths. But again, it's hard in a clinical setting when you have limited time and a lot more professional boundaries than we do at the clubhouse. I, I might want to try that one again. So yeah, no, we can, like that, we can keep going on that one. I mean, I believe what I just said. I just don't believe I communicated it very well. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll re reiterate it because I think you're um, something. Let me, let, let me just reflect back to you something that I'm hearing from you that I'm taking that's valuable. There's something Dee was saying, right? It's like, we're not defined by our diagnosis here. And I was asking you about your leadership. You said, like, sometimes I don't even introduce myself as the executive director. And, like, what popped up in my head was, like, the way in which we have these terms, these labels, right, of labels of power, labels of illness. And then, like, when we've, we're, we're, in a, we're in a space culturally where, like, oftentimes when we meet people, we lead with these labels, you know, like, I'm the executive director. I'm depressed. Like we, we lead with these labels and somehow that creates immediately in, in the relationship some, some barriers, some biases. And when you were saying like sometimes I don't even introduce myself as the executive director, I was also hearing D say like we don't focus on the diagnosis. We don't focus on what role do you play here in this in this game of the, the, the sane and the insane, the sick and the, and the unwell. It's sort of this, this, there's something I think that I'm taking away as a therapist that the more we can equalize these power dynamics, really beneficial, maintaining those professional boundaries, but there's benefits that happen for the person that we're working with. Mm -hmm. But also, as you said, there's something really beautiful that happens to you when you drop some of those barriers that come from the position of power, the position that like, I know, I know what's right. I know what wellness looks like and that that can be somewhat liberating for not just patients, but also for providers in a way. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of you know, our whole society, a lot of times it's, you know, where our value is, um, we try to present our value in, in the labels that we give ourselves or the titles and like, I'm important because I have this title or I have this expertise. But I mean, most of us are, you know, just as clueless as everyone else, right? In, in a lot of, a lot of the time. And I think like, yeah, just being able to um, acknowledge that whoever you're meeting with, whether it's, you know, whether you're a therapist meeting with a client, it's like anyone you come across has something to offer to you and knows things that you don't know. And I think like letting your guard down a little bit, again, within whatever professional boundaries where like that's possible or within the professional boundaries that you have in, in that given setting um, can be very valuable, can help the person, the other person feel more comfortable and help them open up more to you. Um, 
in building trust and, and, and a good relationship where, you know, hopefully they can be truthful and it can be a therapeutic environment. I, I have a question. I don't know if it'll make it in the podcast. It's more of a personal curiosity. Yeah. How do you not get like completely consumed and sucked in by this job? It just seems like there's, it's an area of massive need. You're doing mm-hmm. something really cool. How do you, I mean, I'm sure there are moments where it's hard, but mm-hmm. like, how do you stay balanced? <laughs> <laughs> It's not that hard, honestly. Uh, and again, it's, it might just be me. It might just be my personality. But um, I don't like, yeah, I can like 95% of the time. I'm like totally myself here. I'm like really goofy here. Joke around a whole lot. Um, I have fun here. It's like, you know, there's some days that are really stressful and you know, get really annoyed or whatever, like any other job. Um, but most most of the time, I just feel so free. Um so it's not, it's that it doesn't feel, I'm not carrying any baggage really. Like it definitely, you know, if, if, um, someone here is having a really hard time or going through a crisis or ha- has some sort of traumatic event, like that certainly impacts me. Cause it's like, you have a relationship with a person, you care about them, you're concerned and that, and that happens, unfortunately, you know, obviously that happens. But aside from that, just like the day to day being here and working with people and doing my job, it's like, I, I enjoy it most of the time. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. That story of how you yeah. walked in for an interview and didn't want to leave and you're still doing the same work ever I know. since is a very powerful... Yeah, I didn't want the job. I almost <laughs> turned down the interview um, until I went there and then I did want the job. <laughs> yeah. uh, it speaks to uh, The moment I walked in, there's a, there's a something you can't put your finger mm-hmm. on that is intoxicating. I'm just like, so few spaces nowadays where you can just like go and belong. Yeah. It isn't like most places, it's like you go and you transact mm-hmm. and you leave. Like we're a place where you can just go and hang out. It's a rare thing nowadays. Yeah. Thanks again to D, Jason Woody, and everybody at the Be More Clubhouse. So that's been another episode of Insight Download. If you like what you heard, please take some time to give us a, a favorable rating online, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, shoot off this episode to other people who might benefit from some of these ideas. Because again, our main purpose here is to try to collect and disseminate ideas that we think are really helpful ideas uh, for the world around us. So I know that uh, the podcasts that I'm most likely to listen to are the ones that uh, a friend has sent me when they think, oh, hey, John, I, I thought of you. I really think that you'd be interested in this topic. So if you listen to this conversation and you thought of a friend, family member, a colleague, please go ahead, send this conversation to them. Let them know what made you think of them and help to spread the word. Um, If you have any suggestions about further guests that we could interview or topics that we should explore, please hit us up. Check the show notes for contact information and how to reach John and I. Uh, With that, I'm Fabio Lomolino. I'm John Gorman. And thanks for joining us.